Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. I am Tim McIntosh and today we're going to take a break from our normal format for a very special interview. A few years ago, I read a book by James Shapiro called A Year in the Life of Shakespeare, 1599, and I loved it. It's about the year that Shakespeare wrote Henry V, Julius Caesar, As You Like It, and Hamlet. Like this remarkable year, and, and all these incredible things are happening in England at the same time that he's writing these plays. James Shapiro, the author of that book, recently published a new book. The title of the book is Shakespeare in a Divided America What His Plays Tell Us About Our Past and Future. It's wonderful. Um, it's one of the New York Times 10 best books of the year, and it's a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. The book makes a fascinating case that Shakespeare's plays in the United States have been both common ground and a battleground. And and what I mean is this, Shakespeare's plays have been common ground in that they are loved by everyone. They're loved by presidents, by activists, they're loved by soldiers and writers, conservatives and liberals. There's a there's a wonderful picture uh, in the forward of the book of a Vietnam soldier with a copy of The Taming of the Shrew strapped to his helmet. So, you know, soldiers, writers, everybody loves Shakespeare. So he's common ground, but he's also kind of, his plays kind of are the territory of battles. So his plays have been used by political actors with very different goals and who have very different views on like Shakespeare's intentions. During our discussion, Dr. Shapiro and I will talk about how Abraham Lincoln and his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, both loved Shakespeare, but they used Shakespeare and thought of Shakespeare toward very, very different goals. Dr. Shapiro and I, uh, he insisted I call him Jim, um, also talked about this, this political battle that occurred about five years ago in Central Park over a production of Julius Caesar. In the production, a Donald Trump-like character was cast as Julius Caesar. And uh, Dr. Shapiro went to go see the production and apparently kind of couldn't take his eyes off not only the production, but also how the audience reacted to the assassination of Caesar as this Donald Trump-like character. It's a fascinating account. Dr. Shapiro, James Shapiro, is professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. As I mentioned, the book is a finalist for the National Book of the Year. It's a wonderful read if you're a Shakespeare fan, if you're curious about Shakespeare's kind of life in our great, big, and often divided nation. I strongly recommend it. Okay, let's get to the conversation with Dr. Shapiro about Shakespeare in a Divided America. Welcome to the show. It's really nice to have you on. Thanks, Tim. A pleasure. My, my favorite chapter in the book was um, about 
Abraham Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth, they were both great lovers of Shakespeare. Lincoln could quote monologues and would invite friends to listen to him read from Macbeth and Lear and Coriolanus. And John Wilkes Booth, his assassin, was a tremendously accomplished Shakespearean actor. But they thought about Shakespeare in very, very different ways. And and I'm going to ask you, if you could describe Lincoln and Booth as literary critics, how would you describe their mode? You put it very politely when you said Lincoln invited people to listen to him recite passages. He mandated? He actually, you know, forced them to sit and listen to him uh, recite at length from Shakespeare sometimes for hours. This, for me, I'm glad you enjoyed that chapter. It it was the most exciting to research Mm. and really wanted to be a book in and of itself. As I got deeper and deeper into these extraordinary figures, one loathsome, John Wilkes Booth, Mm. an assassin and a white supremacist, and the other, President Lincoln, who I consider the greatest reader of Shakespeare in, in American history. And Booth's father was one of the most illustrious British Shakespeareans who came over with a mistress to America and led his sons into the business as well, his three sons. They, Lincoln and Booth, had radically different approaches to Shakespeare. And were I to characterize them as critics or literary critics, I I would say that Lincoln was a strict constitutionalist. (laughs) Um, he would invite actors into the White House, pull out a copy of Richard III, and then attack them for using debased adaptations rather than Shakespeare's divinely written, he didn't use those terms, but I think he thought that way, the original texts. And he really believed in the primacy of those texts probably because of how he came to Shakespeare, which was through an anthology of kind of greatest hits of uh, British and Roman literature, which his mother, uh, his stepmother, had brought into the log cabin in which he was growing up, which had precious few books. Lincoln had no formal education to speak of, but he read this anthology and was drawn to the Shakespeare passages like Hamlet's soliloquy, like Claudius's great passages from Julius Caesar. And he committed them to memory and he recited them and others once he got hold of the complete works for the rest of his life. And Lincoln was drawn to what I would call the tortured souls in Shakespeare, Claudius in Hamlet, Macbeth. Now, John Wilkes Booth was also drawn to Macbeth but he read Macbeth in a radically different way. He was only interested in Macbeth the soldier, a kind of a lost cause Southern figure. And there were times when he went on tour through the country acting, he skipped the first four acts to get to the final act, which had a great fine scene, bombast and fighting. And some poor soul who'd be playing Macduff uh, which is a scene Shakespeare wrote, a fight scene that took place off stage. Booth would put it on stage, and this poor actor would have to fight for his life as Booth was a superb swordsman. And so that Shakespeare's Macbeth for Lincoln was a tortured, guilty soul. Shakespeare's Macbeth for Booth 
was a valiant lost cause hero. I would love to hear Booth. I don't know that I would love to hear. I'd be curious to hear Booth's rendition of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps by in this petty pace. What an, it's such an introspective moment, but it's near the end of the play. I wonder how he would play that. I, I think he just would race through those speeches until he can pick up a sword and do what he came to do in the theater and that people piled into that theater to see. And, and I'm an old fencer and I, you know, I have a few scars of my own. People got hurt. Mm. playing against Booth. I mean, for him, it was real. It was real. And he inhabited that manly fallen figure. He was not interested in introspection. Even when he was on the run after killing uh, Lincoln and the reviews and the press started coming in, including the Southern press, attacking him for his action, he would quote in his diary lines from Rick Beth, I'm tied to the stake and must... Mm. Uh, stay the course. You know, that play was flooding through his mind. I want to go back to something you just said. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is the best reader of Shakespeare in American history. Is that what you said? I did. And I'll stand by that claim. I love it. I would love to hear. It's partly because he had such a reverence for the text. Are there other things that make you say he was a great reader of Shakespeare? Yes. Unlike the rest of us, Lincoln let the reality of the world weigh on him. He didn't push it away. Maybe 700,000 Americans had died in the Civil War by the time that Lincoln Mm -hmm. uh, himself was assassinated. And when he read these works, he read it with the full knowledge of the atrocities taking place around him so that he let the reality of American conflict soak into his soul. And he let these plays soak into his soul. And the combination of those two things allowed him to not just see things in these lines, but to feel things in these lines, not just their beauty, but their torment. I got the sense that when he was not working, when he's not at the White House, that he seemed to relax by reading aloud from these tragedies in histories. And I, and I wonder if you sense the same thing. And if so, what does that say about him, that he relaxed with these monologues? I think you couldn't apply the word relax to mm. Abraham Lincoln in the last three years of his life after his son died, after the nation was torn apart. But the works of Shakespeare and the words of Shakespeare provided comfort to him and provided some kind of release from the horrors uh, of his imagination and the horrors taking place across the land. So we know from many accounts, whether he was visiting the telegraph office and waiting for news from his generals at the front, or he was sailing to Richmond at the end of the war, he always carried that copy of the plays or borrowed one. Mm. And it, it gave him a kind of escape, but it was an escape that looped him right back into the troubles he was experiencing. Right. right. Five years ago, I I was reading the New York Times and I read a, about a production of Julius Caesar in Central Park. And, and 
that production shows up in your book prominently. It's one of my favorite stories in the book. So I'll give a little bit of the background, then I would like you to take over. The play opened the day after Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. And it casts as Julius Caesar, this kind of Trump-like figure. You went to go see the play and you started watching the audience's reaction. And, and I'll, I'll preface it a little bit by saying, when I read the account of this production of Julius Caesar, I never one time, I don't know what this says about me, thought about the assassination scene. I just thought about all the great monologues. But you watched the audience respond to the assassination scene. I, I wonder if you could tell us about that. Sure. In addition to teaching Shakespeare at Columbia for the past 30 years or so, for the last decade, I've served as the Shakespeare scholar in residence at the Public Theater, which staged this production at the Outdoor Delacorte Theater in Central Park. And one of my jobs is advising productions. And one of the nice things about this job is, although Shakespeare in the park, in Central Park, is free, New Yorkers have to either line up at 6 a.m. or mm. pay some teenager or homeless person to hold their spot <laughs> in line, uh, which they do. But I just have a pass and I get to see the production and sit with a creative team every night at the back of the theater so that I got to see this production pretty much every night of the run because it was incredibly powerful as a, as a theatrical event and as a social event. Now, it wasn't Stage, but it was conceived immediately after Trump's uh, uh, election in 2016, which shocked everybody, including uh, all of liberal New York. And Oscar Eustace, who was the artistic director of the public theater, decided to do this play himself. And he had done it three times before. It's not as if he was just taking it off his bucket list. Mm -hmm. He wanted to return to this play and with a particular purpose to challenge liberal audiences to ask whether anti-democratic means were okay in order to achieve the end of preserving democracy, by which I mean, is it okay to fantasize about killing Donald right. Trump to save America? Right. And his answer was, it's, it's not okay, although the fantasy is very powerful. And because he's artistic director, he has pretty much an unlimited budget. So we hired 50 young actors in this modern dress production to sit silently through the house mm. for the first half of the play until Brutus and the fellow conspirators pull out the knives and hack the Trump-like Caesar to death in front of us. And every night I'm sitting there thinking, are people going to applaud when Trump-like Caesar goes down? Because before, when he shows up on stage, are, are, are there catcalls? Are people booing earlier in the production before the assassination? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's the other way around mm. because he's working the crowd like Trump. There was a moment when Melania had swatted away his hand on a tarmac uh, in Tel Aviv when they were traveling. And she did that in this production. So Cassius would run on in a pink hat. I mean, right. it was recreating contemporary history. So every time there was a kind of nod, People would just 
love it. And Trump has famously said, you know, I could kill somebody on Fifth Avenue and that'd be okay. Well, Fifth Avenue is a block away. So when the actor reciting that line in the play points to Fifth Avenue, the audience loved it because it was taking a 400-year-old play and making it feel real. It got to the point, you know, I was talking about those 50 extras when Brutus and the others killed Caesar, they would get up and start screaming, Mm. you were wrong, it's terrible, you know, whatever they were yelling. And uh, the blue hairs in the audience got a little nervous. Uh, And what compounded that was right-wing organizations offered $1,000 to anybody who would go in and stop the production. Really? And then it got hairy. And actors started getting death threats, FBI, Secret Service, everything got really, really dangerous for the last week of the run when the right was committed to shutting this down. Fox News wanted to shut it down and the public was the show was going to go on. Yeah. So on night after night, some lunatic would rush to the stage and try to stop the actors. And by then, there was quite a team of security who probably drawn from uh, former football players who could tackle in a flying tackle somebody (laughs) coming from the audience. And um, you didn't know what was next. Was somebody going to carry in a gun? Was somebody tried to bring in a paint gun? You know, you can blind an actor that way. The actors were heroic. Uh, It was extremely tense. And you had real protesters and faux protesters. Mm. And it was tough for people in the audience to know the difference between the two. And when I look at what happened in the Capitol on January 6th, it was just, let's call it a rehearsal for Mm. that Capitol attack. This was what was happening. And this is what theater can tell you that the New York Times and Washington Post or for that matter, Fox News and MSNBC cannot. What is percolating under the surface? The moment that really gripped me is the moment of the assassination. You know, there's this kind of latent hostility, of course, toward Caesar. But then when the assassination happens and the assassins are up to their elbows in blood with holding daggers, you wrote, 1,800 playgoers were experiencing whiplash. What had we been wishing for? By giving voice to the opposition, he was forcing on playgoers. The director was forcing on playgoers a set of moral questions, not unlike those Brutus was struggling with. Do the ends justify the means? How do we justify our values with our desires? Yeah, um, you know, all we have are words, and I cringe a little bit at hearing my own words read back to me. I'm not embarrassed by them, but... There's something about gestures and sound that's more powerful. Mm. And twice during the run, when that assassination took place, it was really a butchery. There was a sound of one person out of 1900 in the house beginning to clap. And ordinarily in a theater, there's a kind of Pavlovian response to clapping. We all join in at the end of a play. We all start applauding. And on those two occasions, no one joined in and the embarrassed clapper stopped. Mm. But you got a sense that that clap spoke for the desire to get rid of Trump and to see the end of him. And yet people did not go there. 
it was not a roaring approval, right. which in fact the right wing did publish. You know, they cheered when Caesar was assassinated, and that was uh, a lie, fake news, call it what you want. Yeah. Later in the book, Shifting Gears, um, you wrote, who gets to perform in Shakespeare's plays is a fairly accurate index of who gets considered fully American. I, I really appreciated the sentiment. I wonder if you could say more about what you meant. Sure. Those listening to me know that I'm speaking with a Brooklyn accent. That's genuine. It's not as if I was born in Nebraska and I'm faking this. When I was growing up, somebody with my accent could not perform Shakespeare, except perhaps on the Yiddish stage. When I was growing up and seeing productions, casts were all white. There was nobody with a physical disability. You didn't see a character in a wheelchair on stage or missing a limb. You did not see black people. You did not see brown people. You did not see Asian people. And Shakespeare becomes a barometer of who is truly fully American. And in the last, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years or so, we've finally seen a sea change so that the actors on stage begin to resemble those in the audience in terms of their background, ethnicity, and uh, appearance. But for too long, Shakespeare is Imagine is something that's spoken in the King's English by a bunch of sandy-haired white folk. And that's just wrong. I, am I right in saying that the first time that a black man played Othello was on, on a major American stage was 1943? Yeah, when Paul Robeson played Othello, which was the obvious black role right. that was suitable, you know, before then, uh, since... Burbage played it in, in 1603 or so. Othello was played by a white actor who took a piece of cork and blackened his face, mm. uh, blackface acting. And there was a great American, Ira Aldridge, who in the 1820s was uh, one of the world's great Othellos, but he could not perform in the United States, so had to leave the country and perform in the UK. So he's acting Othello on the London stage in 1825. Oh, wow. Over a century. Wow. For that to happen on Broadway, over a century, which kind of tells you what happens when you have a country that believes in slavery. Right, right. I saw a production, so who gets performed in Shakespeare's plays is an accurate index of who's considered fully American. With that as background, I think you'll be interested. I saw production at Seattle Rep about maybe three years ago of Romeo and Juliet. And one of my actor friends insisted that I go see it. And she said, the actor playing Romeo is deaf. And I thought, how is this going to work? How mm. is this going to work? It was incredible. What they did was a character would walk off stage and Romeo would walk on stage and the character who had just exited would step then behind, instead of exiting, would step behind Romeo. Romeo would sign his lines and then the actor who was going to exit would stand behind Romeo and would say his lines for the audience. It was stunning and it made me think of that line. That, that's that, great. Right? I'm sorry I missed that production. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking right. about. The full 
range of human experience conveyed on stage. There was a moment when, I can't remember what scene it was, but Romeo, the actor playing Romeo, who had been largely silent the entire play, is in such anguish. Maybe it's when he finds out or when he comes to believe that um, Juliet is gone, he lets out this cry. Mm. It's just a kind of primal anguish. It was one of those moments in theater, I'll, I'll never forget it. And it could not have worked unless the actor was deaf. It was, it was really stunning. That's fantastic. Increasingly, because I'm involved with theater companies that are responding to these concerns, I'm seeing this more and more. Mm. And, and just to be fully honest, the first time or two that I see this kind of thing, I found it a distraction. I was annoyed by it just to be completely right. forthcoming about it because it, it ruffled my expectations. You know, I, I think that's normal. And in the same way that people grow up in a church or synagogue, which only allows men to participate in running the service and then discover that another gender is doing that. You know, you're discomforted at first. And after a while, it's the most natural thing in the world. And it's important for examples like the one you have from Romeo and Juliet for that to become normal and natural. And that's the only way we're going to get past our differences. One of the subplots in your book is about Shakespeare's popularity in the U.S. I mean, and it is a little bit of a shock when you think about the history. A British poet becomes wildly popular in a former British colony. Uh, Alexander Tocqueville tells this story, and you recounted in your book about visiting a log cabin in the U.S. in 1831. And he writes, there's hardly a pioneer's hut that doesn't contain a few old volumes of Shakespeare. How do we explain this? You know, that's one of the mysteries that I pondered and uh, really thought hard about and did not come up with an adequate explanation. We fought two wars with England. We broke with them. We repudiated them. And yet we take their national poet for our own. And you could say, well, we didn't really have a lot of great writers then, or Shakespeare was out of copyright, it didn't cost anything, or he was everywhere within the educational system. All those things are true. But the best answer I can give you is we live in a country that doesn't really feel comfortable discussing the things that divide us most deeply. Mm. And those things are race slavery, reparations, call that what you will. What we did to the Native Americans when we got here, we argue over marriage, over abortion, over a woman's right to her own body. All these issues, we argue about religious difference. All these issues are issues that Shakespeare, in as an early modern writer, Uh, at a time when things like race, nation, uh, identity, uh, family are being redefined, is writing about. And we find in his plays the things that we're really not good at talking about. Othello and the Merchant of Venice, race and anti-Semitism, Kiss Me, uh, not Kiss Me Kate, but Taming of the Shrew remade into that musical Kiss Me Kate about whether women should be subservient to their husbands. Mm. Every way you turn, the things that dominate our cultural disagreements 
are found in Shakespeare. And if you started from scratch and said, okay, let's find some authors who speak to these concerns, Shakespeare would have been banned immediately because right. of how, you know, Hamlet, oof, it's about alcoholism, incest. Suicide. We're not going to talk about those things with our kids. We're going to teach them Hamlet. Are you kidding me? Right, right. Okay. That being said, Jim, sometimes reading as much Shakespeare as I do, I sometimes think, He's an equivocator. We just got done with the show reading Richard II. And the issue of the divine right of kings is always in the background of that play. And you get to the end of the play and the people who believed in the divine right of kings are not rewarded. And those who violate it are not punished. So it makes me wonder, like, yeah, he raises these difficult issues, but he doesn't land he, he, or he seems to me like he doesn't land. I, I wonder if you think he's an equivocator. Well, by definition, he is. And what I mean by that is Shakespeare began his career as an actor and then started writing plays. An equivocator is someone who thinks one thing and says another. Mm. Just the definition uh, of the term. And it's a term that only came into the popular vernacular as opposed to religious tracts in uh, the aftermath of the gunpowder plot in, in 1606. And Shakespeare's one of the first writers to realize what this word is, you know, uh, in Macbeth, come in equivocator, the equivocation of the fiend. Mm. So Shakespeare thought a lot about equivocator. Actors think one thing and say something else. However good an actor is, who's going up there saying to be or not to be, I am always thinking, is that actor saying, I've done this 300 nights in a row? Am I going to have a pastrami sandwich or order roast beef <laughs> after the production? Or am I going to sleep with the person in the second row or the fifth row? <laughs> but they're nonetheless saying something else while they're thinking one thing. The, the, the craft of acting is a craft of equivocating. So the answer is... Yeah, he was. He was an yeah, equivocator. Sure. I, I and he, he kind of loved equivocation. Mm. He probably didn't like the consequences of equivocation when he and 30,000 Londoners were almost blown sky high in the failed gunpowder plot. But as a concept, it is what theater is about. Speaking of the gunpowder plot, I saw several years ago a play called Equivocation by Bill Kane. Have you seen that play? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great I love, play. I love that play. In, in the play, James King James commissioned Shakespeare to write a play about the recent gunpowder plot, which attempted to blow up the king in his court. And, and it poses this dilemma to Shakespeare, who is a character within the play. If I accept the commission, I could offend the king, and I and my fellow actors could lose their heads. And so he's got to decide how much he's willing to equivocate about the truth, how much he's willing to kind of serve his king, his integrity as an artist, all of that is at stake. It's a wonderful play. It's a great play. And I've seen it a couple of times now. And I love it. I've written a lot. I wrote a book, uh, The Year of Lear, in which I wrote at length about equivocation and kind of went down that rabbit hole, obsessed with equivocation. Mm. So this, this uh, play was important to me. For the last decade of Shakespeare's writing career, from 1603 to the very end, he is no longer a Chamberlain's man. 
he is the king's man once King James decides to patronize Shakespeare's company, which means Shakespeare has come to court 20 times a year with his fellow actors and perform there. And he knows that, uh, and during play, they're getting royal handouts. So he knows which side his bread is buttered on. Mm. At the same time, he is a ruthlessly honest playwright trying to expose the intricacies of power and desire and everything else. And his plays are just filled with failed rulers. So he walks a line which no playwright of his time really managed to do right. between speaking truth to power and getting along. Right. Uh, you know, do we have to respect that getting along part? Well, we have to respect that he kept writing plays when Ben Johnson's thrown in prison, Marlowe's assassinated, mm. kid is tortured by the state. Uh, there were consequences to overstepping uh, in a monarchy, overstepping the bounds of what you could say. Right. And Shakespeare pushes right up to and sometimes over that line, but not far enough over to end up in prison. Right. A credit to him. <laughs> Honestly, a credit I know, to him. Some people could say, oh, you know, fundamentally he was a sellout and, and they wouldn't be wrong. We just wouldn't have a lot of those plays. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, last question. Everybody wants to know, in, in 21st century America, would William Shakespeare be a Democrat or a Republican? <laughs> <laughs> He'd probably be a Democrat or a Republican, but he wouldn't tell us which one. <laughs> and what drives people crazy about Shakespeare is we don't know whether he slept with boys or girls or both, that is to say men or women. We don't know whether he leaned left or right politically. We don't know what his favorite breakfast food was. Those are the things we want to know about our writers, who they slept with, who they voted for. To write for a quarter century and never show your hand makes you about the coolest poker mm -hmm. play, mm -hmm. playwright uh, in world history. And he somehow understood that Leftists would embrace his plays as left-leaning. Right-wing organizations would fund programs that would promote his works in the schools because they were clearly promoting the status quo. And uh, I, I just love reading scholarship from various historical moments that claim Shakespeare for their own political views which run the gamut. Coriolanus is staged by, you know, communists and it's celebrated by Nazis. That is one of Shakespeare's great and troubling achievements. The book is Shakespeare in a Divided America, What His Plays Tell Us About Our Past and Our Future by James Shapiro. Jim, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great conversation, great questions. Pleasure talking. Real morning. pleasure. Have a great day. All righty, all the best. All the best. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Plays of the Thing. If you would like to join our discussion, uh, please join the Facebook discussion group, the Close Reads discussion group. That's our parent show. You can also follow us on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. And if you'd like to order a copy of the book, you won't be disappointed. Shakespeare in a Divided America by James Shapiro can be found through goldberrybooks.com. If you order through Goldberry Books, Dr. Shapiro is going to make a little bit more money than if you order from the unnamed behemothbookseller.com. And you're also going to put money in the pocket of 
a local bookstore run by our friends David and Bethany Kern. We're so glad you joined us for this episode. I am Tim McIntosh. Thanks again for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.